My guest today is Brian Burnett, founder of Glenwood South Tailors, a high-end custom tailor in downtown Raleigh, and more recently, Burnett Development, an affordable housing and commercial real estate company. He's been featured in multiple regional news publications for the Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina area as a best-in-class small business owner and is quite possibly the best-dressed gentleman I've ever met. He's full of positive vibes and energy, and I know everybody will enjoy hearing about his journey and his story as an entrepreneur and investor. Brian, welcome to the Circle of Confidence podcast. How's it going, man? Good to see you, Ben. Thanks for having me on, dude. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So so Brian and I met at a a project uh, for the employer that I work for, Kane Realty in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we're developing a mixed-use project in downtown. And this guy shows up about an hour late to a, to the tour and says, hey, I'm here for the tour. And I said, hey, man, you missed it. It's an hour ago. But uh, I can certainly, you know, talk with you about it and happy to, to share anything you, you want to know. But where do you work, man? You, you dress sharp. You're a lawyer or, you know, where, where do you work? And he said, no, I actually run a, a custom tailor shop. So long story short, we, we got to chatting and, uh, and I asked Brian if he'd be willing to, to come on the podcast. So Brian... Give us the two-minute sketch of your background, how you got into the high-end tailor business, and fast forward to today. Thank you again. Thanks for the introduction, man. I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't have to pay you for that because that was great. That would have been really expensive. Uh, so Brian Burnett, I'm a Raleigh native, grew up you know, uh, near downtown Raleigh, southeast Raleigh, which is a, a highly, uh, highly you know, explosive area from a real estate perspective, from a market perspective. And, uh, you know, as we all know, a highly gentrifying area. Um, and what I have aspirations to introduce something called gentrifying. Uh, we can get into that later. However, you know, grew up in that area, fast forward, worked in, worked in, uh, worked in retail for a good amount, and then was able to kind of shift into the, uh, the tech space, right? So once we shot, once we shifted into the tech space, I was actually able to get get really get experience and apply some of the, the lessons learned from retail and, you know, like that personalized experience, understanding what, you know, high end clients are looking for, what luxury goods do, what luxury goods offer, the type of, pe- the, the type of uh, consumer that luxury goods actually attract. Right. And so through that, that, you know, that evolution of selling and then consultative selling, you know, moving in through retail, the high-end s- sector, I developed a really cool, uh, I would just probably say, I would say a following, but I would say more so a, a contact list of people that were really doing things in the, in the business community at a larger scale than I, than I actually had, you know, access to at the time, because we're talking about like 2008 now, and so obviously right on the heels of the financial collapse, you know, uh, great time to get into real estate, I did it anyway because I saw a buddy of mine who was actually, um, was actually flipping houses in like, like he started about 2005. So, you know, he started a really good time because everyone else thought it was a bad time. By the time I got involved, you know, for obvious, you know, reasons that are like barriers to entry typically for real estate, you know, whether it's your financials, your credit or so on and so forth. I was like, I want in, I want in because I've been the type of person from my, my sales experience kind of coming out of high school, going right into direct sales. I've always been a person that, you know, I need to see if your tree bears fruit, right? If your tree bears fruit, then I will listen and quite possibly even heed what you're saying and advising and, and, you know, and urging me to do. And so I saw this gentleman really making that happen. And he was just getting it done in Raleigh and in a couple surrounding areas. He was just doing a lot of house flipping. I got into it, got my teeth completely kicked in. Uh, 2008, uh, where I was on a nice little tear. I was working full time at Nordstrom, you know, when it was basically dead all the time. And in addition to that, I was, you know, running a portfolio on the side and I was 27, 28 at the time. So, you know, we had our, we had a, a turnkey rental property, you know, there was a section A tenant. We had, you know, uh, we had a, a home that was basically being rented out as a multifamily uh, piece under the radar and we had a, a rehab and I was doing all, I was doing all of that uh, with my, with the help of my dad. Okay. So did that 2008, you know, it was great lessons learned. Like I said, got my teeth kicked in, I uh, had those properties. Um, I was doing a lot of like outside study. I was, you know, I was checking out all the gurus and so on and so forth. 
because everything was going on in the marketplace, there were really no opportunity. So I was like, all right, let's go to school. Everyone's going to school. I wasn't going to school. Got into the transfer program two years at Jern uh, Tech, finished up the two years at Chapel Hill. So go Hills from Chapel Hill, went to Europe. And that's when I was really bit by the tailoring bug, right? So I got an opportunity to really explore Sable Road, Germ Germ um, German Street, um, you know, different tailors like Jason Hawks and, you know, Richard Sexton and, uh, excuse me, Edward Sexton and uh, Oswald Botang and, um, you know, all, all these guys, Ascot Chain, all these fine luxury menswear brands and houses that really had a great connection to their client. And I realized that it was nothing like that here. Everything here is like someone's going to a mall and someone's buzzing around you, um, you know, telling you what you need to get done. And it's super, super transactional. And the reason why that's been so effective is because in any situation when the, a consumer is getting what they need, the product or the service that they need, and they're getting it in a consistent manner with a, with a, with a competitive or low price, they really don't have a need to look elsewhere. They really don't have a need to change their behavior, right? Their consumer behavior until they find out about something that has more value. Right. And being in being in the UK and then going to France and then going to uh, Italy and then going to Holland and then going to Amsterdam and then going to Germany, seeing how clients were treated in a much more personalized approach and a, little, a more personalized manner. And, the, and again, this is right on the heels of me leaving Nordstrom. Right. So I'm being I, I was already exposed to a good amount of high end menswear. Now I'm being experienced. I'm being exposed to the consultants and the sales professionals that were bringing it together and I thought wow like why 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 does someone have to come buy a four thousand dollar suit to be treated like royalty right why can't they just have that phenomenal experience like that Nordstrom experience why can't they have that experience when they're getting their thing they're getting their things tailored so that stayed in the back of my mind fast forward um, I got back started working in technology you know, again, learned a lot, worked in an email marketing company, then worked for an enterprise level web design company. So I learned about, you know, customer psychographics and learned about user experience, um, uh, UI, UX, and, you know, how to build out frameworks and, and what big companies look for when it came to a, a content management system um, that pushed their brand all across the globe. So did that. However, I realized that if you're going to be stressed out over a deal, it needs to be a big deal. So I kind of, you know, I, I, I jumped ship a couple times and um, during, I think it was the spring of 2015, uh, uh, you know, I had went to a tailor shop because I was always going to tailor shops, right? And, um, and I just, the experience was just so poor. And I was just, I was like, but I thought about it. I was like, you know, been, I had been going here for 10 years, 10 years and having a C-level of experience at best. And, and, I, and no one knew my name. And like, can you imagine going to someone's, house for a year and not having a relationship and i didn't realize I, I had been basically doing my own due diligence for the past 10 years and i just didn't know it so we came in man i told my um my wife then girlfriend i was like dude i'm in this tailor shop and she looked at me like i had like three heads like what i was like i'm telling you like this will work because i know there are certain guys that are as particular about their clothing as i am and someone that's an executive getting their things tailored, they, they would like to be able to be treated like an executive, right? A professional, anyone that's, that's used to a, a good experience would love to like have that. They wouldn't really care about if it's another five bucks because you want someone that's consultative, a subject matter expert, and someone who has a personalized approach. Because those things, not only they give you what you want, they make you feel good and you feel valued. So this October will be five years. We started with one grumpy seamstress and uh, it's now with uh, five years, uh, almost five years, October will be five years, you know, almost, uh, you know, you know, 10, 10, 12 team members. And, um, you know, we, we, we take care of some of the, you know, some of the biggest uh, uh, leaders in the, in the business community in the triangle. So multiple CEOs and I'm very, we're very, very fortunate and have a great team. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So let's start. So when did you, back in 2015, you started Glenwood South Taylors. And by the way, when you say Taylors, 
we're not just talking Joseph A. Bank, you're going to sell a suit, right? Like explain, explain the difference. What do they do? So what we do is we bring an experience to your tailoring and alterations. We make tailoring and alterations an experience versus a chore slash transaction. Typically, a person would go to, uh, they would, a typical person that would need to get something tailored would really just need to get something altered. So let's, go, let's say you go buy some jeans, right? Typically, um, because I've been in the retail world, typically jean manufacturers make jeans always at least three inches too long. They do that intentionally so they can sell more. Because if, you, if, you're, five, if you're 6'1 and I'm 5'10, we both can buy the same size jeans, you know, depending that we have the same waist and all that stuff. And we just go get them hemmed, right? And so the average person just needs to go get their jeans hemmed. They would say, all right, I need to get my jeans hemmed. That's really an alteration because you're taking a garment and you are altering it for function, right? You're altering it for function. You're going to, let's say, you go to a mall, you go to a strip, strip, strip mall. But these days, people are buying two and three hundred, $400, $5 jeans. And they want to they wanna say, hey, like, okay, so I've got these jeans and they have a selvage in them. Can we keep the selvage in them? And also, I want to get these, like, I want to make these, like, a little bit more trim. How do I do that? And if you go and see, but see, that's tailoring. Because that is actually altering the garment beyond function. You're now, we're now actually making it aesthetically pleasing and we're actually making it complimentary to a person's body. That is tailoring, right? That is tailoring. And that's what we do. And we add the consultative approach. We add the, you know, we add the great communication skills. We add the digital communication ability and we add that mobile component, right? So we really elevate the experience, you know, without going South Taylor's alterations experience is stuck in the late eighties, to be quite frank with you because you're going into a shop that's in a strip mall or in a mall and you are, you're talking to someone who's just there to take care of the job, not necessarily make you build a relationship with you to say, you know what, Ben, I want to take care of your entire wardrobe. I don't want you to have to worry about anything when it comes to tailoring alterations or suiting. I want to be your one-stop shop provider for tailoring and alterations so that way you can focus on growing your career, spending time with your family, and you can rest assured that you actually have a clothier and a tailoring house behind you. Someone told me this once that you can compete on cost, quality, or speed. Glenwood South would compete on quality and time, saving you time at a higher value, right? But it's a high-end service right? Break down, so it's a high-end relationship-driven service. Break down, what's, what's Glenwood South Taylor's, what's y'all's sweet spot? Is it like women's tailoring? Is it, is it men's suits? Like what's the sweet spot? Or is there? I'm curious because I know nothing about retail, alterations, clothing. I know nothing. So great question. So regarding our sweet spot, Glenwood South Taylor's is, is really, is really um, helpful to the young professional man or woman that is looking to take their wardrobe where whatever their current price point is to the next level okay and that revolves around professional wear do we tailor jeans yes do we tailor bridesmaids dress yes we do do we tailor overcoats and outerwear absolutely but our sweet spot is professional wear Professional wear being trousers, sport coats, shirts, pants, things of that nature. Like that's our sweet spot because that is something that every person will at least at least have, you know, five to six garments in their closet of. And through our research in our early in the earlier days, I did a survey. Did you know that 88% of the of, of most people, of say any population, we'll take a subset, we'll take Raleigh. 88% of people in any given area, and I, what I did was our area, our clients, asked them, text them, talked to them, looked at the numbers. 88% of most people have five to seven garments in their closet that they would wear more if it fit better. I'm in that 88%. <laughs> I know you are, because you're a young professional. And I know that it's not just jeans. I know there might be a couple pair of slacks, up you probably you know because because one of our art like on the on the younger end of our, the spectrum it's a gentleman who's just graduated from college a couple years ago and it's like hey man i haven't gotten this is my first suit out since college 
but I still got it. Great. And we, and we know what? We know your things have changed from a fit perspective from then to now. We want you to refine your wardrobe and, and actually invest in your wardrobe, starting with what you already have. See, the thing about it is, like I said, that's why if you notice how we started the company, like the model that I had in my mind when I was like in college, I was like, what we should, I said, what you do is, I said, you start something that's service-based, educate the client, build ground well, well support, build an organic following, and then what you do is you give the client an opportunity to graduate to another level. Because so right now, um, a, little, a, little, a little bit of our secret sauce that I'll share with you is that what we are seeing is that a lot of companies are, are, are having clients where the client really just kind of hits a plateau. And for us, we want a client to be a full-service client. See, we're, we're full service, but we want the client to be a full service client because Benton as a professional, the, has it, have you ever been in a situation where you've like been on the phone with customer service for wherever the product or services and you talk to five different people and you have to tell your story to five different people? That's a little frustrating, right? Because that's wasting time. So for us, we're saving you, all right, you're going to get your things tailored. We already know what you like. Oh man, I need to get us. I need to get my jeans hemmed, but I like them on the trim side, the skinny side. All right, we can go back to the same. Go back to Glenwood South Taylor's because they take care of that. They understand me. Uh, I want them shorter. Uh, we can shorten them, but let's let's talk you through like why as short as you're requesting may not be the best from a longevity perspective. Oh man, yeah, man. You know, I just got my bonus, dude, and I heard you guys do bespoke suits and. You know, I, I don't know anything about this. I go into these places around the city and people are super like frumpy and super, um, you know, they're, they, you know, uh, like, like don't want to talk to me because I'm young and I don't, they don't think I have like money to spend. It's like, listen, we got a men's sugar right across the hall. We got some of the best cloth mills around on the planet. Laura Piana, Scabal, um, you know, VBC, Thomas Mason, you name it. You know, we've got some of the cloth, some of the mills where they only make enough cloth for to make a hundred suits, right? And so we can take you as far as you want to go, but you've built a relationship. You've built a connection with someone who's going to take care of your closet. Oh, and I'm getting married, Brian. Oh, well, dude, congratulations. We're going to also cut your bespoke tuxedo. And by the way, have your wife reach out to Candace, go ahead and book an appointment for her to have her, her gown tailored. We're at every milestone. We're at college, professional life, you know, kind of the, uh, the, the higher end of the professional life with that, you know, that income jumps. Now, now, now I'm married and now I got a lifestyle. So we're hitting you at, we're, we're, we're giving you value at those connection points where you don't have to worry about does someone get you, Right because we're already talking to you and you're coming to the shop and you're having bourbon and you're drinking wine and you know, you know, we're, we're, you're seeing us on Instagram and you're learning about what I do and what the client, how we serve clients and things of that nature. And you can go to our website, which is a digitally responsive website. So you can understand the heritage of what we do. So we're, so we're, we're not only just a, a tailoring house, we're becoming actually a lifestyle. I love that. There's, gosh, there's so much there. You just made me think about this. I go to the same great clips every month. Why? Because they save the notes for my haircut. Now, look, Glenwood South is high-end luxury tailoring. So very, you know, very different industry. But the point is, is that you know your clients. And that, and there's a lock-in effect there that... It's, it's hard to transfer that to somebody else after you've been with Brian and Glenwood for a while, right? Do you think that's more important? Or actually, is that the most important piece? And if not, what, as in the relationship? If not, what is? It really starts with the connection. And guess what? If, we, if, you, if, if you and I have, if you and I hit it off, if I'm, if I'm out that day, you'll still trust to go to my place of business because you understand the tone that we've set. You see what I mean? So we're not talking about, you know, a thermometer telling the temperature. We're talking about being a thermostat and determining the temperature, right? And so when you come to us, it's, hey, welcome to Glenwood South Taylors and Alterations. What are we doing for you today? 
blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. Let me get you in, in a dressing room. And, hey, so tell me about why you're in today. So we're probing. We're having a conversation. We haven't, we haven't sold you a thing. But like, again, like I'm saying, like that in itself, just those two or three sentences or questions, it's, it's, it's like, it's like years ahead because guess what you can't scale. You cannot scale a personable ability to love people. Can't scale that. That's the beauty of small business. So that's kind of where I want to go with this, you know, in the age of Amazon where retail is just getting hammered, right? I mean, I think you probably saw it. Brooks brothers just filed for bankruptcy. There's a lot of high-end retailers that are getting shredded because of the Amazon effect, not just Amazon, but just online e-commerce. But what I love about your business is that it's it's much more service-oriented with the relationship piece built into it. So maybe just talk a little bit about how you see your business model in relation to e-commerce and sort of the rise of e-commerce and like how you've thought about how to fit in there. Awesome, man. Man, you give me some good questions. I love it. So in 2013, and it's funny, so coming back from Europe and like a lot of my, you know, my, my peers from school, they were, I'm like, oh, like, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to go work for Amazon. Oh, I'm going to go work for uh, Spotify. Oh, I'm going to go work for CNN. Oh, I'm going to go work for Magento, um, Shopify, and um, Yahoo, and, and all these different e-commerce players. Because if you think about it, 2013, E-commerce had this really big explosion of like of of people understanding like this is not only is it here to stay, like I can wrap my life around this. You know, I can actually I can I can like buy my groceries like online. I can like set up a subscription to have my like my detergent refilled and like automatically sent to me. Right. And so all of my colleagues and all of my peers were running towards digital digital, digital bits and bytes, right? I'm gonna work for this e-commerce company. I'm gonna work for this email marketing company. I'm gonna work for this search ad company. I'm work for this digital agency. I was like, man, there's an adage. It's like, when you see everyone else running to the right, you need to run in the opposite direction because there's no opportunity. Like, like I can't, I, I don't wanna compete. So for me, you hear me, you probably hear it in the way I like communicate, but see, I'm a huge Grant Cardone fan. And see, I got exposed to Grant Cardone like right out of college. And so he, he ruined me because I went into, I went into corporate America with a bloodlust. Like, 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 yeah, you, you know, I, I dressed, you know, I dressed okay because of, you know, I wear the Nordstrom, but please understand that I am coming, I am coming to dominate, period, period. And, and that's why the entrepreneurship piece is all about the, your, your mentality. But so having that e-commerce experience and seeing what companies were, were investing in. So I'm working at Bronto, uh, email marketing company. And I'm seeing how companies were, you know, timid, you know, about investing and, and like, okay, cool. So people are buying more stuff online and Magento was a new e-commerce platform that started integrating all these different technologies into the, in, to the, to the checkout, to the checkout box, right? You know, you go buy something. And you'll say, hey, like, I, I want these five items. And, you, and then life happens. And then you go away. You know, Magento was really at the, at the cutting edge of, like, offering um, um, shopping cart abandonment technology and reminders. So they get your information. You put stuff in your cart. You, di you di disappear. Boom. Then they started, like, sending you reminders. And we're talking about, like, now we're talking about recouping revenue, right? And so I'm seeing all of this because I'm understanding what I'm seeing, what psychographics are, are really important to people. Psychographics being likes, tastes, interests, right? And so I'm listening to all these different data points that these retailers are wanting to actually capture about people. And I'm learning about list segmentation. So then I'm learning about how big retailers are actually segmenting on things that you and I really didn't, didn't even think about when it comes to like consumer behavior. Did you know that someone that has a Gmail, a dot Gmail address is going to spend about two point two, about two, I would say about two to three times more in a quarter than someone that has like a dot AOL. So, so just, so just think about it. The people in your gener in your, in your, your peer group, your, your colleagues in the real estate industry, that have graduated with, from college within the last three or five years, I dare, I dare you to go ask 20 of them, dude, what's, what's the email address that you use the most? And listen to how many times you hear at gmail.com. And so I, I learned that at the beginning of my career, geographically, I learned about zip codes, and then I made my manager send me to a, a seminar 
of, um, for the Triangle Business Journal to learn how to segment based, based off of zip codes. Fast forward, being in the service business, we can implement those, those best practices and those knowledge to understand, guess what? If you kind of, if you look back around 2014, there's a really big push to talk about omni-channel retail. Because Bronto's um, pitch line was, I'm going to help you drive revenue um, using email, mobile, and social. That was it, because I wrote it down 300 times, so I knew I aced it in my, in my interview, okay? And so those different touch points make you an, an omni-channel omni um, player or marketer. And so we took those things because we also understood one thing, that people will still want to buy, touch, and feel. And people love to buy from people that they like, know, trust. You've got to come see me. You've got to compress the flesh to, to know, like, and trust me. And when you buy something online that you have to wear, you can't go take it to eBay. You got to bring it. You got to take it. You got to bring it to us. Because you want, you want a trusted advisor. You want a subject matter expert. And you want someone who's focused on a personalized uh, approach. And that's kind of how we kind of wrapped it up to make sure that we're at the connect the connective points, the digital points. But then when it all comes back to people, we're we're who you, we're who you're going to come back to, because we've we've carved a really good digital path for you to have not many choices. Yeah, and you know, in e-commerce, they're they're all about moving goods. But to your point, it's really hard to move services through e-commerce. I mean, you know, certainly we've got these platforms where you can sort of hail an Uber or you can order food, but like I haven't really seen a a tailor tailoring service as a platform. So, to your point, it's almost Amazon proof because you've got the relationships, you've got the knowledge, and they're going to wear it, so they want it to look good. So I, I love that business model. It just seems like it's it's very very Amazon proof. So I want I want to hear how you guys are. Uh, I know COVID has impacted everybody differently. I'd love to just explore that. You know, being in the retail space and knowing that everyone was forced to shut down. How have you guys been able to react and and recovered from that? So what we've been able to do, obviously, you know, COVID just, you know, obviously just, it, you know, it like so many other businesses, small businesses, it really um, hit us with some really unfortunate circumstances. And, you know, the, the landscape of the, the consumer behavior market just changed immensely, really almost overnight. And so, you know, having, having a team that's younger, not as seasoned as a lot of, you know, like seasoned professionals, we felt like, I felt like it made more sense to really keep that connectivity up with with the team over the the quarantine or self-quarantine so we decided to do that but really keeping in touch with people and then we decided to really kind of go a little bit more inside and let people understand a little bit more about the you know brian and the brand and where we are and where we're where we're where we're going and so for us you know march hit and into like that first and second week of March, boom, shut down, close it down. Revenue goes from, you know, X to zero, you know, but you still got, you still got payroll software you got to pay for. You still got rent that landlord is expecting you to pay. You got a, certain types of debt you have to satisfy. You, I mean, you understand, you know, being in the, the CRE space. And so lots of those things were really choppy for us, but we we're able to navigate because we have such a strong client-based relationship. Do y'all carry inventory? That's one thing I failed to ask. Very good question. So as of today, we do not carry per state inventory. And just so you kind of understand, so we have Gloom South Taylors, but we actually have another company because I started another company year one, and that is company is called Hings Suiting and Armory. And I named it Hings because in Chinese, Hings, Hings means consistent and persistent, right? And I wanted to have something that was different that was also uh, mobile, where and not mobile as necessarily going to someone's home, but mobile if we have to leave our geographic location, right? Because Glenwood South is a, is a geographical location. But if we have a name attached to it, we can take that somewhere, right? And so I wanted to be able to do that and, uh, and, and, and leverage that, that uh, uh, a branding power, so to speak. And so we launched Hings as a 95% bespoke showroom shop. 
okay? That was the best that I could come up with because I knew that there were a lot of players in the market that were offering, you know, custom suiting and they were offering custom shirts where they weren't offering a total end-to-end solution where you're working with style experts with a built-in infrastructure, right? You know, it's all like, because our goal is to, we really like to be as, in, as, as, vertically, as vertically integrated as possible. And so now we are actually considering pivoting to ready to wear, which is carrying inventory, because that's because of COVID. COVID, what I, what I, what I am anticipating in, the, in uh, let's just say Q3, I'm anticipating a resurgence, cases to spike. And so for us, being agile to actually say, let's, you know, let's deploy some capital into ready, ready to wear inventory. So that way, when clients want to be able to support us, there's a way for them to support us without, you know, breaking any of the social distancing and, and quarantine, you know, policies that, that, our, that Governor Cooper, our client, by the way, just in case you didn't know, implements. And uh, so, we're, so, we are, so we're definitely trending in that direction. And that's going to allow us to, you know, really have four, four solid service channels. So we have tailoring, bespoke, bridal, and the third where we're doing like the, the you know, our closet editing service called the Tosser Tailor. Um, that will kind of, you know, that will kind of share the spotlight with our ready to wear. And, and the thing about it is, is that because it's ready to wear, it's not bespoke because it is not being made for that person, but we will still you know, carry the heritage of fine, luxury-driven sport coats and suiting and trousers and shirting and so on and so forth. We'll still, we'll still be, be very constant with that because for us, the luxury market is, 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 is one of the, the most explosive markets in fashion, you know, and it actually allows businesses to grow, create more jobs, you know, expand a skill set that is a dying skill set, which is tailoring, as you probably know. And then what gets me, what gets, what really gets me excited and up in the morning is, is knowing that we can actually change the way that retail employees are compensated and treated. Like that's super excited being a former retail employee. A couple things just to hit on going back to one of the earlier questions. I feel like the economy is getting bifurcated into sort of digital and then non-digital, and mostly non-digital are the services. And so it's interesting that you're taking this approach of mostly digital, right? So I definitely want to hit on how you approach your digital strategy for Glenwood South. How does that play into your business model? Is it the front end of the marketing funnel, or is it just a piece? I'm, I'm curious, you know, given that you're a predominantly services-based business. How does that play into it with like the app, the website? I want to hear about that. Yeah, so so to lean on some of the past lessons learned and experience to for a service-based business to, you know, to cross the chasm and have a digital strategy that's scalable to a certain point and that is going to really, you know, give you the client acquisition that you're looking for. So we're gonna really, we're gonna, you know, we don't really have to reinvent the wheel. You know, there are a lot of best practices that have been that have been working. So email marketing, you know, not as potent, not not the high, highest ROI as it was back in 2013. However, as technology and digital marketing is actually improving, delivery email deliverability is improving, right? And so if we're able to really take advantage of you know um, new tech, video tech going into emails and if we're able to you know really leverage um you know um, um um you know text message communication things that and i don't mind you know expressing these things because people already know I me mean, we've been in business five years we've been texting clients since day one right and i did that as a, in a, in a as a direct uh slight at my former manager in tech because when i was i was a regional sales i was a, um i was a regional sales associate and what i did was i connected uh, direct sales reps with bank VPs and, uh, and you know, chief, chief uh, credit officers. And so these men and women would leave their cell phone number in their email signature. Dude, I would just hit their cell. 
hey, this is Brian, blah, blah, blah. You know, saw you read one of our white papers, wanted to see how we can, you know, maybe get on each other's calendar and just kind of talk about possibilities. And if it even makes sense for us to keep in touch over the next two quarters, click, boom, done, right? And so I was doing that on their cell. So now I'm, I'm, we used to say, if I'm in your phone, I'm in your life. If I'm in your phone, I am in your life. So I'll, so when we opened the tailoring, tailoring shop, we couldn't even really afford to get a landline. So I was like, oh, we're going, we're going to get another line, another line for, for my phone, for the shop, and we're going to start texting people. And it's, and it's a thing because now what we've done is actually changed the culture of client communication for a small business. Because if you think about it, how many other personalized services that you use actually organically text you? You make a great point. So, so it sounds like text is a much bigger driver of the relationship than email. Absolutely. And the thing about it is, is that where where we feel like we're strategically positioned is that. See, it's different. See, text is much more. It's like a double-edged sword. Email is much easier, and you'll get you'll get less friction by using it. But the penetration and the and the and, it, and you know basically hitting the target is is diminished. However, text messaging, you won't necessarily have the volume, but dude, I mean the hit rate, it's it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty on dead on because first off, I've I've got to have your cell anyway. Like we got to have your cell anyway, and then when we're sending you, when we're messaging you. We're not trying to sell you anything. We are literally letting you know that something is complete. And like what I'm saying is that our text messages, we don't use like, like um, there's, a, there's a service where you can send out a mass, uh, as we call it, like a text blast. We don't use that. Our, our fitters, myself, we text clients. Like when you, and if you see it, like we do have templates that we use, but it has, this is not, this is not automated. We can't reply. And we reply back. I mean, we, we talk to clients and we, you know, we clients send us emojis and everything. Like we had a client that bride today and she sent us a text message about, um, you know, coming to do her hair and her makeup for her wedding. And uh, I was, you know, I, I sent, hey, like, you know, hey, hey, Diana, you don't want you don't want me touching your makeup or your hair. I promise you that personalized relationship. Dude, you can't you can't you can't touch that. You can't touch that because we're doing the fundamentals, right? And that's communication. That's digital communication. And it's organic. It's not me pushing it out through slick text. It's not me pushing out through slick text. It's literally, hey, this is Candace. Hey, this is Keith. Hey, this is Brian. Hey, this is Kendra. Hey, this is Linda, right? Real people talking to real people. Real people. Well, man, I could talk about service businesses all night. And I do have this feeling, this sense, there's a guy out there who I'd love to get on the podcast, by the way. His name's Nick Huber, and his Twitter feed is The Sweaty Startup. And his idea is that instead instead of, like, to your point earlier, of going off to these tech companies that become the 0.01% that actually make it, you know, go start a sweaty startup. Now, in your case, maybe it's not sweaty, but you tend to have a 95% rate of success as long as you know how to execute. And it sounds like you're executing on the customer service side. And in doing that, he likes to advocate for taking your profits and your proceeds from that and rolling it into investments. That's what you've done. So let's talk about the real estate side of things. Tell us about Burnett Development. What are you doing there? So with Burnett Development, growing up in public housing, growing up in public housing, um, low-income housing, you know, I grew up in an area where the average income was about seventeen thousand dollars a year. So, but, you know, um, I didn't see a lot of ownership where I grew up. Everyone was renting. Everyone was paying someone else's mortgage, and you know what I mean when I say that, right? And so, you know, it's always been on my heartstrings because my dad would actually, when he would take us to the mall, he would take us through the really nice parts of of Raleigh to go to the mall, completely unnecessary, right? And, but, but it allowed us to think bigger. It, it enabled me to think bigger. And so I've always really had an, an infatuation with just um, grandiose things like big houses and stuff, right? And then fast forward, you know, our dad moves us out of the last housing project that we lived in. We lived in our own house. 
Um, and this was near the high school that I went to, which is in Southeast Raleigh as well. And um, I just, you know, a couple years after graduation, my grandmother passed away and I just you know, saw what my dad was going through trying to like keep our house. And I was still like, you know, I was, you know, a teenager. I just, I saw what was going on. I, I saw, but I wasn't looking, right? Or I was looking, but I didn't see. And one day, uh, I was around 21, 22, and I was, you know, being a, you know, 21-year, 22-year-old knucklehead, working and all that stuff, working. I think I was working maybe like a hotel or something. And I was living in an apartment complex. And I was just like, man, because see, at this time, I'm, I'm actually, I, I was approached by someone in the network marketing industry, right? They're like, man, you agree with people and so on and so forth. And, you know, I love you to be a part of my organization. And so I, I was kind of, I got, I got into that, but that opened, that took the blinders off. And so I really started to absorb my environment more. And, um, and so they were talking about, you know, wealth creation and assets and, uh, you know, how to, you know, you know, um, build a life and, you know, not, not, you know, get around people to have your solution and not your problems. And I was, um, and I was reading, learning about learning from good guys, John Maxwell, Tony Robbins, Jim Rohn, Brian Tracy, Robert Kiyosaki, and, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was the first book I was hit with. My dad hit me with that book at 21. Boom. <laughs> Done. It was a rat KO, and that was that was the most. I think that, that was the best gift my dad ever gave me. When he brought that book to my job, I was a manager at a burger shop. He said, "You need to read this." Rich dad, poor dad. Fast forward about six months later, after reading that book, trying to reread that book, I walked outside the apartment complex and I looked around at the apartment complex, and I looked. And I, and I looked at the doors and I, and I just thought, I was like, one, two, three, four. And I think I counted like 50 doors. It was, it was been, it was like one of those apartment complexes, like a big arc, right? A big arch, right? It was like, just everyone could see everybody. And then I thought about the, the rent we were paying. And then due to hit, <laughs> Like it's some like you ever just like you're just walking and you're not even thinking, man, and you trip and you're just like boom, done. It hit me like that. I looked at I, I said 50 doors. Everyone over here is paying like 900 a month. Dude, I did the numbers and I was I think I sat in the parking lot for like 30 minutes trying to wrap my head around what I had been seeing all my life. But I had never really stopped to look at it. So at that point at 21, 22, real estate was became came like my first love. But I saw, I saw, I saw the players. None of the players looked like me, right? My at this time, because this is when I was kind of like you know, heading, um, I was working at hotels at this point. And my dad was bringing me the Wall Street Journal. And I'm reading about all the guys who are getting it done in real estate. So when I finally got the opportunity, you know, with Glenwood South Taylors, and, you know, we were having some successes, having some revenue, um, business was able to sustain itself and then make some, some strategic uh, deployments of capital. I said, dude, we're just going to, we're just going to, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do this thing. Because I'm constantly hearing in the, on, the, on the periphery, Raleigh's low-income housing problem. 40,000 applicants for low-income housing. You know, people are waiting. The average rent. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to people's homes with the tailoring, right, in the early days. And, you know, tailoring stuff. And I'm looking at what people are paying. This is 2016, 2017. And I'm going to the Gramercy. And I'm going to the Lincoln. And I'm going to the L. And I'm going to the Link. And I'm going to the Paramount. And I'm going to St. Mary's Square. I'm going to all these apartment complexes. And I'm like, so, you know, hey, it comes up in conversation. So how long you been here? And like, you know, oh, how much, how much is this place? It's like, oh, 1400 a month. I'm like, 1400 a month for economy size. So I'm thinking, this is why there's no affordable housing. Because people are paying $1,400 a month. And people are paying, in, other, so in order for someone that's, in a, you know, of modest means, that's way above a, that's way above, you know, 30% AMI, right? Intermediate medium income. And so I said, what better time would it be for us to move slowly into 
you know, creating a small portfolio um, with Burnett Development, building some relationships with some players. And so we've taken that and I, you know, I, you know, I, I uh, convinced a couple clients uh, selfishly because we cultivated a, a nice client base of high-end professionals, CEOs, executives that can also do what? They can also uh, introduce me to other people that are at their level, not just for tailoring alterations, but let's talk about real estate development and let's talk about creating some assets and some experiences and some places where I have the energy and the, and the, and the, you know, and the ability to, to connect with people. And so Burnett development was born last, last spring. And so we, you know, we kicked that off and, you know, I was telling my wife at this point, you know, commercial real estate, she was like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I was like, I'm like, I have to have at least a commercial building or apartment complex by the end of 2019. So at this point, I'm thinking on a different level. I'm not, I'm not even thinking about residential. I don't do, I don't do residential well. <laughs> I'm just not good at residential. And so I've learned kind of like the, you know, the, the knife fighting version of real estate, you know, owner financing, seller financing, and sent out some LOIs, so, so, you know, a gentleman bit, so to speak. And was like, yeah, he's like, yeah, like, um, I'd be interested in seller financing. I'm not, you know, I don't really have time for it. I've got a career and blah, blah, blah. I was like, so we go from, you know, I'm running a, ta- running a you know, tailoring house and knocking out suits and measurements and drafting patterns. Now we, now we, now we own a commercial building, 7,000 square feet. It's like, oh. I had this weird habit of getting up on Sunday mornings at 7 a.m., getting on Craigslist, searching that. What do we do? Find, an, find another guy, Bites, six acres, Southern Virginia. I'm like, okay. He's like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do it. I'll, all right, cool. What do we need to do next? Google, contract, in 2T, North Carolina. Boom, 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 boom. Go, sent. And, and having these great relationships and, client, and clients that are professionals in their own right, have these really, you know, decorated uh, pedigree careers and track records, they're introducing me to people, right? They're introducing me to people. So I went to a training about entrepreneurship in 2017. My wife was like, why are you going to a training about entrepreneurship? I was like, because I can get better, right? I go to that training six months later, graduate from that training, and they tell us about an event that SCORE is having, which is a service core of retired executives. I meet a guy, I meet a Jack Kimball, real estate, commercial real estate veteran in Raleigh. He connects me. He's like, he's like, oh, first you need an attorney. Because I thought I was going to be a hot and heavy real estate wholesaler. Hell no, not doing a wholesaler. I tried. I totally tried. Um, but the tribe just wasn't for me. I just didn't have that. I didn't have the, you know, the skills. And this is, by the way, this is after, been. this is after I failed my real estate exam twice. So... I even I, I I took the real estate course for my real estate license last uh last I, maybe it was maybe it was like the end of 2018. The stuff was moving so fast, but yeah, I failed that twice. And but he was like, Yeah, you need to meet Mike. All right, Mike, cool. Mike has been a commercial real estate attorney for about 15, 20 years. He didn't even have a website. That's how strong he is. Boom. He, he, he says, okay, cool. Let's go and get these closed out. Now I got a real estate attorney. Okay. Now got a, I got one of our clients who's, who, who hadn't really, she's not quite the sales person, but she's phenomenal at what she does. Shout out to Cher at Snark Studios. I was like, hey, I need a website. She's like, send me a template. By this time, I had gone to a community event and got connected with some of the biggest developers in town because I decided to show up. And if you notice, you'll hear me towards when I start talking about real estate, then I'll start talking about doing the unnecessary, right? The person who does the most unnecessary things to get ahead will get ahead faster. In the beginning, you'll do the things that you're not paid for so that towards the end, you actually get paid for things you no longer do. The things that were really, you know, really, really tough for me as far as like finding people and finding talent and which you'll, which you'll start to see as, as time goes on. A, a huge time stuff for entrepreneurs is talent talent recruitment that's why people hire recruiters because you're trying to find someone to do a website you're trying to find someone that's the way the price is right their their mind is right you like them they like you across all the different channels that you might need someone to come in it's exhausting you could burn six months just looking for people before you get anything off the ground 
and so that's kind of how we kicked it off. And um, we're we're looking at our we're looking at a third acquisition as well, like as we speak. So you know we are you know we are doing good because my goal is to make an acquisition every year, one a year, and that's because of what how much my, how much I'm needed kind of like in operating the tailoring house before we kind of kick off the development. So that's where we are. You know we want to you know we're looking at some some projects in Raleigh for affordable housing development. You know collaborating with the with the buddy of mine that I've met over the years, and we're looking to move forward and do some explosive things and really change the landscape and modify the face of real estate development. Yeah, I want to get into before we get to the affordable housing piece of that because I know that that's it seems like that's a that's something that's really on your heart from a mission standpoint. I want to get into the commercial building. Do do you currently have that leased out? What's it being used for? Talk us through that. So so this build so this building um it it had it had plans for for lofts of upstairs. And so obviously with the owner not wanting to, to maintain ownership or control of the building, you know, it's obviously on us. And right now what we're seeing is with COVID, you know, I think you probably could attest to a lot of investors, institutional money, um, uh, institutional money is on the sidelines right now. It's something that's very speculative, speculative. And this is obviously highly speculative. And so we are, you know, we actually just hired our first uh, architectural um, architectural um, aesthetic person who's actually going to come in and, you know, give us some renderings and, and give us some aesthetics about what this could look like. Because we want to, you know, I actually have visions, envision actually going vertical because it's two stories now. And so, yeah, I actually, actually want to, you know, I, I think we can take it up. I think we can like truly make highest and best use of real thing and take it from, you know, uh, 7,000 square feet to maybe about 48,000 square feet and, and really, you know, do some, do some um, retail on the bottom, do some commercial offices in the center and then do a couple of lofts um, on the, you know, on the top couple floors. And so right now as it stands, it is a two story shell um, and, and, and it is a two story, it's an empty two story building. It's not a shell cause it's not stripped down to the studs. Um, you know, it's historic property. And for us, we see, you know, as a, it's a long-term play, you know, uh, we may, we may make some things happen in the next like 12 months, but we think right now is a really unique time in history where there are a lot of, um, I think people from an economic perspective are looking to collaborate with people that they never thought that it made sense to collaborate with. Right. And, you know, we're getting approached by a lot of people because I decided to kind of like come out, you know, kind of come out with this and not be so covert about it. And because Grant Cardone always says, you know, obscurity is not your friend. So when you're looking to build a brand and, and build a legacy, you know, you kind of, you got to go ahead and you got to go ahead and get out there. So that's what we're looking to do. And with these other, you know, the other, other property, you know, six acres, it's uh, it's zoned high density residential. So kind of, you know, I looked at the plot map. We'll have to do, um, we'll have to do, look at a lot size, uh, do a lot size study or a lot fit survey, just kind of see, you know, I, I think, I think that would be a good fit for a nice multifamily project, you know, maybe about 80 units or something. Um, you know, the building, like I said, I already talked to that kind of like a mixed use historical situation. And then this next property, um, I'm superstitious, so I won't really talk about the details of it, but I, I think, um, you know, doing some, I think doing some, some office space or uh, kind of like a mixed office space arrangement uh, for small businesses is great because right now this unique point in history, small businesses is it, right? Like it's like you need to, like, it is the thing you need to support small businesses now. And that's another thing that kind of, then insulate us because you never and you never you never like underestimate someone like a Bezos, but it gives you a great it gives you a really respectable hedge against a, a big digital player when you have a professional brand, especially now because people are kind of on the fence about huge huge multinational companies and they're like, okay, now it's a thing we really need to support local small businesses. Yeah, nobody's out there saying. Hey guys, go buy from Amazon today. They really need your help. Right. They really need your help. They need to, they're trying, they're, you know, they're, they're trying to, you know, make that next quarter, you know, earnings season is up. They need your help. Like, 
no, they're not. They're not getting that that type of attention. And so we feel like we're you know uniquely uh, positioned to to you know to to benefit from that. You know, on the on the tailoring and luxury goods sector and from the real estate sector. So the affordable housing component to Burnett Development. I work in the commercial mixed use development space, as Brian knows. We historically have not done affordable housing, so I'm not knowledgeable about it, but I would like to learn more about it because it's something it's something that I'm very interested in. But from the studying that I have done, it seems like it takes a lot of public-private partnership. Maybe talk about some of in your studies what you've learned and how do you make it profitable and sustainable while also keeping the core mission of keeping housing affordable. Um, so there are several different sectors, and I w- and I will definitely not purport to be a uh, an expert on it. But through the research that I've done, you know, you have a couple venues, you have your um, your PPP, not the not the PPP that everyone knows now, but like you said, your public private partnerships. Uh, we have you know some you'll have some um, you may have some municipal debt, you may have some private equity. And you may have, you know, you know, just, you know, some other players kind of come into the space where there's the city offering, a, you know, a complimentary lot. And then, you know, maybe having, you know, allowing you to raise some some debt or raise some equity, you know. Um, so you have the, you have that. Then you have your low income housing tax credits. Low income housing tax credits are their uh, animal in, in their own right. There are certain levels of the tax of the housing tax credits where you have to, you know, go to the market offer offer the debt up and then you know say hey this is what it's for you know then you know if the debt is issued then you know you kind of have your debt then you have to raise a little equity and kind of move at it at that pace those are those are some really uh in involved situations and transactions and frankly you know i'm still learning how the intricacies of that but as an entrepreneur as we both are you you also understand you learn what you need to learn right now, right? And you can get to the other piece. But it's all about kind of have that, that as well, you like saying, still that next 20 seconds, right? We need to understand, okay, let's build a team first. Let's build a team, okay? Because we know there's going to be some zoning conversations that need to be had. There's going to be some site fits and renderings that need to be had. They're going to need to have some, some decks created, some performers manufactured. See, like those things, are, are where our focus is because you always want to go with that MVP, that minimum viable product. Because we had a lot of people when we first opened the tailoring house to say, oh, like, well, you know, you have to do this and how do you have machines and you have space and, and like how many seamstresses do you have? It's like, it's like, dude, I don't need all that right now. I need one person to take care of the work. I need to be able to meet the client and close them on our experience and our dedication to providing them value. And I need a space to do it in and a way to take money. That's it. Let's keep this like super simple, dude. On the real estate development side, let me tell you, be honest with you, Ben, like out, it was a stretch for me to even have a website done. And that's one of the things that most entrepreneurs, they have to sell the people that they're, the people that they're kind of like working with in the beginning stages. Like if you have a social media manager or, or if you have like um, someone that's, uh, you know, maybe doing your website, they'll, they'll want to hit you with all these curveballs. I'm just like, dude, MVP minimum viable product what is your vision for raleigh or affordable housing in other areas as well is it is it market specific and in general what's your vision for that so so for raleigh you know growing up in like so one terrace you know when we when when we were there we were we were you know we had to move to another housing project project which was called halifax court we had to move there and what i noticed was that a lot of people were pushed out because there was nowhere to go in the periphery right there was nowhere in to go like near shaw uh near Caralee, and all these different places and so for me my vision is that you know two two to three thousand you know mixed income products so fun fact halifax halifax court over near peace and seaboard that whole situation so that used to be a housing project. That was where I lived. That was a brick, all brick, orange brick, barrack style, low income housing project. Okay. Dirt, concrete, yards. That was it. No flowers, none of that, none of that stuff. Concrete um, situation. And the thing about it is, 
we want to create those types of products that don't give the residents a stigma about living in mixed and in mixed income dwellings. And when you say mixed income, what, what do you mean by that? So when I say mixed income, you might have you living next to someone who's a daycare worker and she has, you know, two kids, single mom working a daycare, two kids. And then on the other side of her, she may be working with a, a software developer. And just duplicate that because see, I love like like a, a part of a part of what you know. Um, I get people like about me. They say regarding my eye for fashion is that I love to blend genres. So I love to blend genres. So when you look at some of the things that I wear, I'll wear a linen sport coat with a tuxedo shirt. Linen is super casual, but the tuxedo shirt is very is very formal but it's the contrast that leads to the beauty because it's like wow because it's so different and you juxtapose that when you talk about people living amongst one another that young lady who's a daycare worker how how awesome is it for her to live beside someone is in the commercial real estate business and someone in the tech just think about how her kids become exposed to to those to those industries to those there was a certain point in time that I actually thought I wasn't smart enough to sell te- uh, sell software, and that was when I worked at Nordstrom. Because I because I, I had no one in my life that was in those industries, so why would I think that I could do it? It's a great point that you know you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time around. So, what kind of programs? What kind of things can you do to make financing those deals where they are, where there is a unit that's rented at X and then there's a unit that's half of X. Talk about some of those programs that are out there for the affordable component of the, of a development. There aren't a ton. There are not a ton. You do have something called a CDBG. So a community development block grant. You know, that's something that's been around for a long, long time. Um, you will have, so if you're a property owner, the city does, and, and a lot of stuff has kind of like changed with the whole COVID situation. But I know the city of Riley had several like homeowner, like home up fit grant. So if you are, you buy a home and you are going to fix it up or rehab it, you're a developer, you're a very small stage developer, you're a small developer, but the city, you know, will go in and maybe, you know, give you up to 75% of the construction costs. Or something like that. So the city of Raleigh has a lot of resources there. If you can't, you go in and you look for, um, you know, uh, planning, the planning department, because now the planning and the design department are one. So you can kind of look at to see what kind of services they're offering for homeowners. Um, like I said, this community development block grant. Um, you have um, at the federal level. I think I th- uh, there was one at the federal level being HUD. Um, there was one thing was like the 207B where it's a, it's, it's like a multifamily type loan um, where these loans tend to be pushed through um, from a government perspective pretty quick. Uh, but uh, you know, that's, that's something that's out there. And there's, there's really like not a ton, especially now, because if you're not a John Kane or, you know, someone over at Grub Ventures and, I mean, banks really aren't talking to you unless it's a really meaty multifamily deal. Um, spec situations are, 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 very, um, are very sticky right now if you don't have an established track record. And, and those are things that we're going to hack. We're not going to try to hack them. We're going to hack them. Final questions. What personal values or beliefs are most important to you and how do they inform your day-to-day business? Oh man, that's great. Wow. That's strong. So as personal values, um, uh, number one, leave an inheritance to your children's children. You buy someone's opinion, you buy their lifestyle. Don't take it. Don't take advice from someone that didn't have what you want. Right. I didn't say that they weren't trying to get what you want. I said, don't take advice from someone that didn't have what you want. And be legendary, baby. Those are guiding principles for me. People are like, man, God, you, you never sit still. Why are you walking so fast? Dude, I'm trying to be legendary. I can't let grass grow under my feet. What is one thing you would have done differently now that you are almost a decade into your journey as an entrepreneur and investor? I would have made more friends before 
it became necessary for me to need them. A billionaire actually gave me that advice as he was getting on the elevator, Bob Johnson. Bob Johnson was a founder of BET, Black Entertainment Television, and he did a distinguished speakers event in 2009 over at Duke University. And I went there because the topic of his discussion was deal flow. And he left, they whisked him away, and I ran down the hallway to catch him. And I said, Mr. Johnson, I said, if you give me one bit of advice, just one, you know, at this time, uh, I think I was probably like, I was working like restaurants and doing the network marketing thing at the same time. And he was like, make your friends before you need them. And that's from a billionaire. What person would you most like to meet who is alive today? And what would you want to talk about? I feel like I would like to sit down with Elon Musk. I would actually want to ask him what was the scariest decision he made. Because see, that that's going to shift my thinking, right? Because we always say, you can always say you're doing well when you compare yourself to the people that you're hanging with. I got I to gotta get around people that make me look like a bum. You have to invest. Like we're talking about, like you, it, going to meet with Elon Musk, that would take some investment, right? To get from where I am to get to where he is, that would take some financial investment, some time investment. It's no different. So you can't operate Glenwood South Taylors or in real estate anymore. Where would you be working slash what would you be doing? I would be a stuntman in California. I used to, I, that was actually what I wanted to do. And I love action movies. So I would be a stuntman. What is the biggest challenge in your life as well as in your business currently? And how are you attempting to tackle it? Biggest challenge right now is deciding how much I want to give into the like the dark side of entrepreneurship and when i say the dark side i don't mean that in a negative way i mean like when like aren't like for me it's 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 all encompassing and like you can just become an animal and i flirt with that day in and day out like how like how hard do i really want to bring the pain like we, so we, you know, like they say, entrepreneurs, we're the only people that are work, you know, 80 hours a week. So we don't have to work like 40 hours a week for someone else. Right. And so for me, you know, I work, I'm, I'm going to be straight transparent with you. Like I work to be able to say no, I work to be able to say no, but we work to have that time freedom because time freedom is huge, man. Cause you know, you know, yeah, money is money, but see time and money is lifestyle. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.